So I'm very humbled to be able to bring God's word to you. I tried desperately to find somebody else who wanted to lead music, and nobody did. So I'm happy to do that as well. Thank you for uh, bearing with me. It's, um, it's quite a privilege to do this, and I, I don't take it lightly. So let's turn to God's word now, and uh, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the fellowship that we have in Christ because of the grace that you bestowed upon us in your son, Jesus, that he came to pay the penalty for our sin, which we could not pay, and that you might reconcile us to yourself, and not only that, not only forgive us our sins, but bless us with so many rich and gracious promises that you would adopt us as your children, that we might cry out, Abba, which is basically the Hebrew form of Daddy. We pray now that you would guide my lips, make it so that I don't say anything that isn't your word and your intent for us to hear today, and that we might all hear from your word, that it might change us, that it might grow us to be more like your son, that he might receive all the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if you will, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. I had prepared earlier, uh, back months, months ago, when I told Roman, sure, I'd be happy to, to uh, fill the pulpit when you're gone at some point, and uh, I went back and reviewed and studied more yesterday all day, and uh, I got really excited. And I hope to share a little bit of that excitement with you uh, this morning, um, because we serve an amazing God, and the fact that he preserved this word for us uh, is quite a blessing. And so... We'll be in Mark chapter 17, or chapter 10, verse 17, and it's the rich young ruler. That's what he's known as. We'll look at that account, and what I wanted to just start out with is, is talk about a little bit how Jesus had spent much of his ministry uh, addressing misconceptions about the kingdom of God and how to enter it, and Ancient Jewish society was very religious, very religious, but often very misguided on uh, the matter. And so misguided were they that even the disciples, we'll see later in this passage, um, were exceedingly astonished, exceedingly astonished at his teaching. Um, this man runs up to Jesus, kneels, be, kneels before him, and asks every evangelist dream question. We were talking about evangelism this morning. The dream question. He kneels down and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question. And could there be any better person to ask than Jesus himself? Uh, likewise, today, we need clarity on this matter. Uh, many modern forms of evangelism would have approached the situation very differently than Jesus did. Very differently. Um, it's a tragic and powerful encounter, uh, which Jesus turns into a teaching opportunity with his disciples. And the church today even is often concerned with seekers. I mean, you've heard the term, you need to be a seeker-friendly church. Or the question is, what are people seeking, though? People seek a lot of things. They seek success, approval, belonging, meeting, fulfillment, love, relationships, fun. You name it. God? Nope. We read it this morning. Psalm 14, verses 2 to three. 
The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. A friend of mine once said, uh, what you win them with is what you win them to. Win them with the colorful banners, the fun music, the games, whatever it is, that's what you've won them to. But if you win them with the gospel, that indeed is the power of God. And some might think that the gospel isn't present here in this passage. We'll read it in just a minute. But it certainly is. And I hope uh, to show you that today and um, as we peer into God's word. So let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 17. We'll read through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let me pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Bless it now. And bless our hearts as we seek to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I outlined the passage if you're a note taker. I don't know if this will be helpful because I'm not much of a note taker. I usually do footnotes in my Bible and that's about it. But um, there's six points. The journey, the man, the question, the answer, the love, and the exit. This is how I've broken it down. So let's look at the journey first. And I'll review those as we go through. So verse 17, right there, it says, and as he was setting out on his journey. This is very interesting. His journey. What is his journey? Well, his journey is the journey to Jerusalem. Jesus on, is, is on the east side of the Jordan. So if you like to look at the maps in the back of your, your book or in the back of your Bible, um, Palestine in the time of Jesus, you have the, the Dead Sea there. And you have um, Jerusalem is right here. Jericho is right there. And he's in this area of Perea. So he's, he has been traveling through, and he's coming up. He hasn't yet reached Jericho. Um, that's where he's been ministering. And the interesting thing is, remember, Jesus had asked his disciples who he was while he was teaching, right? He said, he, he was asking, well, who do others say that I am? Oh, some say you're Elijah, some say the prophet. Who do you say that I am? And you remember, Peter makes that very... Um, big confession. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. You remember. And Matthew tells us, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's Matthew 16, 21. And Luke tells us, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, Luke 9, 51. 
it was very publicly known. I mean, so much so that he was rejected by a Samaritan village along the way because, as Luke 9.52 says, he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. It was set toward Jerusalem. Remember, that's when James and John wanted to call down fire on the town, and he's like, no, no, he rebuked them. This was the journey he was on. In fact, it's just after this encounter, Jesus amazes his disciples. In verse 32 of chapter 10, uh, he says, and uh, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. This is why Peter says in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost that when he's preaching, he's telling about this Jesus. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So his journey here, his journey is that journey of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He knew why he was going there. He stated why he was going there. It says that it was hidden from the disciples. They understood after his resurrection, but still they were, they were told plainly. Remember how Jesus says he will lay down his life for the sheep? Remember that? He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Beloved, how thankful we are for this journey, are we not? Amen. This is his journey. So next, the man. We looked at the journey, now the man. Mark 10, 17, right there in our passage. He, a man ran up. Well, who is this man? The nice thing is that Mark isn't the only one who records this account. Uh, it's also recorded in Matthew and Luke. And so what do we know about the man? Mark records very few details. The only detail that I could see that he records is that he had great possessions. That's it. Uh, but the good thing is that Mark tells us, uh, well, no, Luke tells us a little bit more. He tells us that he's a ruler, likely the ruler of a synagogue. That would probably be one of the main types of rulers, not necessarily a Pharisee or a scribe or the Sanhedrin, but maybe like a layman ruler of the synagogue. Um, he was, Luke tells us, extremely rich. Matthew also tells us that he was young. So think about what this means. It means that he had wealth and power to enjoy in his youth. In human terms, he was on top of the world. And all the earthly success anyone could dream of, he had it in his life, right? Well, what does he do? He runs up. A man ran up. You see that in verse 17. A man ran up. So it's important to know that Middle Eastern men of nobility, they did not run. They wore a long garment. It was like a, a tunic. And it went down to your feet. And in order to run, you would have had to gird up your loins. You've heard that term, gird up your loins. You would have had to stuff it, you know, roll it up, either stuff it in your belt, or um, I was looking at a diagram yesterday. They would wrap it around and tie it in front of them so that your legs were exposed and you could run. You couldn't run otherwise. And so it wasn't becoming of nobility to do this. And so it was very out of the ordinary. It was very surprising. That's why Matthew says, behold, 
a man ran up. Right? He was kind of like, whoa, look, this is like, this isn't normal. And he knelt before him. You see that in verse 17. He ran up and knelt before him. Uh, this would be a sign of honor, submission, humility. This would have been quite surprising to everyone around. Why? Well, because he was a high re highly respected man. He was a man of nobility. He had wealth. He had success. And he runs up and kneels before this Galilean teacher who had already been rejected by the, the, the religious authorities, the scribes and Pharisees. Everybody knew that they wanted to kill him because of it, right? And so he runs up and he kneels before Jesus. And he addresses him with an honorable title, too. Look at that, verse 17. Good teacher. I mean, he addresses Jesus as good. That word in the Greek there means intrinsically good. It's not the word, there's two words in the Greek. One is like, it looks good uh, on the outside, good in form. But this word is good intrinsically, like virtuous. So that's the man. That's really kind of what we know about the man. And that brings us to the question. So we've seen the journey, the man, and now the question. Here's the question. He asks, what, right there in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He asks every evangelist's dream question. I've shared the gospel with a lot of different people. Nobody's ever asked me that question. <laughs> I wish they had. I'm kind of like, oh, I wonder if somebody was just like genuinely interested. You know, what must I do? It must, it's, it's almost like the question that the Philippian jailer asked. Paul, you remember when he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved in Acts 16.30? The Jews understood eternal life not as a quantity of of life, although that was included, but a quality of life, a life with God, a life free of trouble, a, a spiritual richness that cannot be compared or, to or realized on this earth. Uh, this was salvation, and, and he wants to inherit it, and all that means is to take possession of it. He wants to take possession of it. I mean, really, the, the man seems primed and ready doesn't he? He seems spiritually minded. He's asking the right question. He's asking the right person. He has a sense of urgency because he ran up. And he's, he's humble. He's kneeling before Jesus, asking him the question. He probably knows he doesn't have what he needs. Because later in Matthew, he asks the question, you know, what do I still lack? So he probably knows. He had reached the pinnacle of religious society and success, and yet he still knew he was lacking something. Jesus knows all people inside and out. We've seen that in John chapter 2, 22, uh, 24 and 25. He knows what is in the heart of man, and he knows the motive behind the question, does he not? The religious society was built around being good. Uh, he was good. All his friends were good. Everyone else he thought was good because he, you know, what he had achieved by their standards had rendered him basically approval with God. I mean, he was was good. There was, there was no question about it. It's kind of like the, the Jewish elders. You remember when the centurion sent to Jesus in Luke 7, 4 through 5 uh, to ask uh, for his servant to be healed, and they appealed to the worthiness of this man. They said uh, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have, the, to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who built us our synagogue. So it's very much you know, because of what he had done, that's what his status is now. Uh, we have this issue today, too. I mean, ask anyone on the street, anyone, if they're a good person. 
And almost certainly they will say yes, right? That's what Ray Comfort does. Uh, by the way, if you don't know who Ray Comfort is, um, I encourage you to look him up. Uh, his, the ministry that he uh, ministers through is Living Waters. Uh, write that down, Living Waters and Ray Comfort. He's all over. Um, his videos are on YouTube and stuff. And um, just he asked people on the street, do you think you're a good person? And what do you think the answer is? People on the street, yeah, yes. Yeah, I think I'm a good person. It's very rare that he encounters somebody who says they won't. And if they say no, they're usually a believer. Um, human nature has not changed. It's very easy to assert our own goodness. It's a small thing for human nature to do that. And so it's with this backdrop that he asked Jesus how he can basically, I would say, add eternal life to all his success. He would really be set then, wouldn't he? He'd have, he'd have literally all the bases covered in this life and the life to come. He would be lacking absolutely nothing. He has his physical inheritance already here, and he wants to know what he must do to inherit the eternal life. So that's the question. So we've seen the journey, the man, the question. Here's the answer. But before we get into that, Take a moment of self-reflection. How would you have answered this question? Somebody asked you that question. How do you answer it? You think about it. You know, we're, um, as believers, we need to be ready for, uh, to give a, a reason for the hope that is in us. We've certainly shared the gospel or the things of God in some extent. Uh, you're probably thinking right now of unsaved loved ones, family, uh, friends, coworkers, if they ask you this question, how, how would you answer it? Now, it's interesting. Let's see how Jesus answers it. Notice he does not give him any of the usual answers. And we know the usual answers, right? Paul and Silas to the Philippian jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a direct quote, right? Or as Peter told the crowd on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And Jesus definitely did not say, just ask me into your heart. It should scare us that those words are not found in Scripture anywhere. Asking Jesus into your heart to be saved. Certainly, if Jesus had given him a prayer, he would have prayed it. If he had given him a formula, he probably would have followed it. And if he had asked him for a decision, he would have made it. Although he does make a decision, or he does ask for a decision, but a, we'll get to that. Now, faith in Christ is absolutely essential, of course. But something else is also essential, and that is repentance. Saving faith is always always a repentant faith and true repentance is always a believing repentance you can't have one without the other it's very interesting notice faith never actually is mentioned here in this passage anywhere this is why scripture testifies in mark 1 14 to 15 Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Theologians identify faith and repentance together as conversion. And if you're interested more in this topic, um, there's several systematic theologies I can point, to you, um, point you to later. Uh, if you just ask me, but um, Grudem is really helpful. Wayne Grudem has a systematic theology. Um, faith and repentance working together as, as conversion is what they call it. So Jesus, instead of saying those normal responses that we would usually think of, um, He begins with a question. 
He had on many occasions stated the gospel of grace through faith. And those who placed their faith in Christ always were accompanied by believing repentance. But you can go through the gospels and you can see person after person after person who had faith in Christ. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. He constantly. But in this case, Jesus begins with a question, and he immediately questions the man's definition of good. Look back at the text with me, Mark 10, verse 18. Here it is. Jesus answers the question with a question. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? That's the question he asks. You see, everything that's, with everything that seemed right in this man's approach and request, there was one major problem, and that was his definition of good, right? Jesus addresses the necessary belief about what is good and what is truly needed. And you can say that it is a matter of faith because it's what the man thought about what was good, right? He adds there, no one is good except God alone. This makes the definition of good absolute. It, Jesus extols the goodness of God in contrast to every man. And interestingly, there are various degrees of bad, but only one standard of good. You can see that in Psalm 105, if you're jotting these down. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Or Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Or Romans chapter 3. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In that section in Romans where Paul is establishing the depravity of mankind, he, he pulls from Psalm 5, Psalm 10, Psalm 14, which we read today, Psalm 140, Proverbs 116, Isaiah 59, 7. I mean, certainly the man, being a re as religious as he was, could have known these scriptures, right? God says repeatedly throughout scripture how holy he is. There is none other. And Jesus affirms that in the Sermon on the Mount. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, back to our text. Knowing his perspective on what is good, Jesus says, you, he, well, so he basically runs them through some of the commandments. So let's look at those commandments really quick. He says, you know the commandments in verse 19. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. These are the commandments pertaining to our relationships with others, if you notice. And he knows the man's heart. He touches a nerve where the man felt confident, but he was actually really sensitive. Um, after all, the religious leaders of the day had taught that you must earn your salvation, and naturally they favored the rich, linking wealth to a sign of God's approval because... They were steeped in this legalism. The young man felt that he had arrived. I mean, the signs were all there. You could see it. Everybody respected him. And so he was able to publicly say, there it is, verse 20. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So confident and so arrogant was he that Jesus when he listed these things the man replied that he had kept them all from his youth of course we know that is not possible and because Christ in his sermon on the mount kind of revealed the intrinsic nature of the law um, it's this it's the spiritual nature of God's commands it exposes every person to have fallen 
short of keeping them perfectly in every way, right? I mean, if, if we were perfect, we'd be all right. Uh, but as we've seen, Scripture denies that possibility. Anyone, no one can be perfect in this life, right? And so this man's position must not have been too far off from where Paul was. Think about Paul. He was the, a Pharisee. He had checked all the boxes. But what does he say in Romans chapter 7? This is Paul writing. He says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if not, it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The law wasn't something to be justified by, but rather convicted by. He's not saying that he didn't sin before the law came. He's saying that he, the law exposed the sin that was in his heart and produced in him all kinds of covetousness. So the interesting thing here is that Jesus strategically skipped the first table of the law. He kind of ran through the second table of the law. Uh, but he must have strategically skipped the first table, although he's going to address it in a certain way. And I'll show you that. It would have been interesting to hear the man's perspective, though, on fulfilling the first four commandments. But knowing the man's heart, Jesus purposefully skipped these. Um, so he certainly does not confess any sin. And could he have been telling the truth? What do you think? This, this rich young ruler, could he have been telling the truth? I mean, is it possible that he could have kept those from his youth? No, no way. Jesus taught the law goes much deeper than the surface, and even on the surface, he must have broken these laws to some degree. And deep down, as we learn from Jesus, they are easily broken every day, right? Unless the man was sinless, he had sinned, and sin is missing the mark, and the mark is the law, and the wages of sin is death, thus the law kills us. He really deserved to die, as do we, you and me. Right? That, that's, the, that's what the law does. It convicts us of sin and sentences us to death. However, his insertion revealed something even deeper in his heart. He was also a blatant violator of the first four commandments. What are they? Do you remember them? Number one, no other gods before me. Right? Number two, no idols. Number three, do not take my name in vain. And number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Right? He was a religious man. He knew the commandments, and on the surface... He was worshiping the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He certainly wasn't making or bowing down to idols. Uh, he wasn't taking God's name in vain by their definition uh, and probably kept the Sabbath ritual as well as anyone else. I mean, he was a man of nobility. right? But deep down at his core, he was a blasphemer. And how do we know that? He did not worship the one true God. Why? The one true God was standing right before him. Right? Every time he worshipped, it was not in true faith. Every time he invoked the name of God, it was in vain. Every time he went to the temple for sacrifice, he played the hypocrite. He certainly would not have admitted to being violating those laws, but this is, the, this is the man and this is his answer. 
And this is the underlying intrinsics of what Jesus is kind of pulling out of him right now. By making this assertion, he basically perpetuates the public facade of righteousness that his wealth and power provided. And he made no acknowledgement of having missed the mark in any way. By his assertion, his perfection in his human relationships uh, demonstrated most clearly his lack of relationship with God. Anyone who knows God confesses their sins and a need for a Savior. So this is his answer to the question. That brings us to the love. We've seen the journey, the man, the question, the answer, and now the love. Look back at the text. Jesus, verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You can see the gospel looming over this story constantly, can't you? It's never actually stated, believe in me for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, But it certainly is there. Because Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It was born completely out uh, out of love, this answer. And remember, love speaks the truth. The most loving thing Jesus could tell him is the truth. Think about what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What he tells him strikes at the heart of the matter and exposes the man's unbelief. That's really what it is. And Jesus addresses this man's utter self-righteous idolatry. He, Matthew records Jesus as saying, if you would be perfect. Um, each writer includes different details that they saw as important. Certainly, there was probably much more to the exchange than we have recorded. Uh, but that validates the different eyewitness accounts. Mark here says uh, in, in verse 21, there Jesus saying, you lack one thing. Okay, so one thing, perfect. The man's folly is exposed by the one thing he lacked. But it's very interesting because Jesus then lists a bunch of actions. He says one thing you lack, and then he lists actions. I mean, after, so what, what is the one thing that Jesus was talking about? I mean, it may be summed up like this, and we'll get into it, but faith in Christ. That's what he lacked, faith in Christ. Everything Jesus lists would be a simple demonstration of outward evidence of inward faith, would it not? None of these things will earn salvation. For this man, they would simply be evidence of his trust in Christ alone for salvation and total submission to the Lord. Instead, it results in disobedience. But as with Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, what does it say? And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Obedience is simply evidence of belief. Let's look at what Jesus actually tells him to do. Okay, so look back at the text. There's five things. He says, go, sell, give, come, follow. I'll go through this slower. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Pure faith, pure faith in Christ's promises could be the only motivation in this man's life, a man of this status, this stature, this position, this success, this youth, this wealth, pure and total faith in Christ could be the only motivation that this man would do what Jesus said. 
It's total surrender and trust to the Savior. For this man, though, his stumbling block was his self-righteousness and his possessions. This was his idol. He had everything he ever wanted in life, and he simply asked to add eternal life. His God really was his power, his possessions, his position. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So don't think, don't think that going out and selling everything you have and giving it to the poor will earn you eternal life. That's not what Jesus was asking for. When you trust in Christ, you surrender everything to him. It doesn't mean you immediately divest yourself of every physical possession so that you are destitute. In this case, these were very specific instructions to this man. But faith in Christ is surrendering everything you have and treating it as though it is his. Right? He asks you for it all. If he asks you for it all, you willingly obey. If he gives you more, you are thankful and you manage it well. So let's just think about this for a second. How about you? How are you doing? Certainly, I'm asking the same question of myself uh, as I've been studying this. And I thought about it. One way I like to gauge um, your love for Christ versus your possessions, if you're concerned that um, possessions might be an idol for you, if that might be your idol. Um, One way to gauge it is your reaction when he takes them away. Do you become disheartened and sorrowful like this man did? Or perhaps angry like Job's wife? You remember she told Job, just curse God and die. Or can you say, as Job did, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember, Job was another one of those who had great possessions. He was brought very low. He lost all his children, all his wealth, and his health. God brought him back, but that wasn't the point. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Can we say that genuinely? Notice also, Jesus was not suggesting that the man become poor. Look at this. Look back at the text. In verse 21, he gave him a promise. And you will have treasure in heaven. Scripture is replete with these promises of treasures in heaven, immeasurable riches of his grace, the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, the storing up for yourself, as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Jesus asked this man to surrender all and follow him. He offered him treasure in heaven and eternal life. It means the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, treasure in heaven, and so many more great promises. But here's the thing. This would have huge ramifications especially for this man. Because Luke says, he was extremely rich. So at this point, you might be thinking, well, it's a bit hard to relate because I'm not extremely rich. (laughs) But I thought about this a little bit, and so let's explore that for just a minute. Jump out into a little, maybe outside our comfort zone. Ask yourself these questions. Do you have a safe home, cars, food, clothes, clean water, indoor plumbing, electricity, modern appliances, climate control, health care, entertainment on demand, etc.? I mean, if you have these things at your fingertips, you live far better than the richest kings of old ever did. I mean, entertainment on demand. I think of the court jester, like, bring me the court jester, right? (laughs) Let's put it further into perspective. If you have a net worth of 100000 or more, you are in the top 
in terms of the world's wealth. You're in the top 10%. And if you have a net worth of 1 million or more, you are in the top 1%. Now, I know some of us drive a ways to get to ranch, uh, where are we? Uh, Rancho Santa Fe. Um, Olivenhine, we're in Olivenhine. Uh, we're a stone's throw from Rancho Santa Fe. Um, but we live in a consumer society which you know, satiates our cravings at a moment's notice. Can you see how relevant this is? I hope this brings it a little into perspective how wealthy we really are. And so you might ask the question as you know, I did, okay, Lord, are you asking me to do this? Now, if the Lord asks you for those things, all those things I just listed, I just fired them all off, and you know them because we deal with them on a daily basis, right? Sometimes our climate control doesn't work very well, but uh, we're working on it. If the Lord asks you for these things or takes them away, how do you react? Are you able to say with Paul, as he did in Philippians, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Boy, how that verse is taken out of context so often, isn't it? As a follower of Christ, we recognize Everything you have is his. And you seek to honor him with it all, not just the 10% tithe on Sunday, right? He has the right to take it away, as he did with Job and Paul. He also has the right to give you more, as he did with Abraham and Solomon. Uh, you must be faithful and submissive to God's word in whatever God has given, whether much or little. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 33, So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So that brings us to the exit. We've seen the journey, the man, the question, the answer. Now the exit. Was this rich young ruler willing to do this? Was he willing to trust Christ for the true riches that he had been promised? Was he willing to obey God no matter what the cost? It's right there. He was not. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He already had what he wanted, and he was unwilling to give it up for Christ. Right? He had no faith in Christ's promises. He had no trust in God. He had faith only in himself. Uh, he did not recognize the holiness of God or his need for a Savior, clinging to the lie that his youthful wealth and power was indicative of his moral perfection. So we'll just wrap up with this. Did Jesus immediately change his message? I mean, here, the man is going away sorrowful. Um, did he beg him to come back? No. The account shows how he actually turned this exchange into an object lesson for his disciples. Uh, Jesus will explain the intrinsic nature of salvation and how it is accomplished. He will exceedingly astonish them in the coming verses, verses 23 to 31. And he may just do the same for you and me. So if you want to come back next week, we'll look at verses 23 to 31. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for 
your love. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you for your ministry. And we thank you for the word that you have put before us. We can see your your grace and your patience on display, and yet we see the unwillingness of a sinner to repent. And we know, Lord, that you are sovereign over that as well. You are sovereign over all salvation. And we'll see that next week. Because the disciples are going to say, well, then who can be saved? So he's saying it's, it's impossible. And your glorious words, with man, it is not even possible. But with you, all things are possible. And we thank you that you have wrought salvation in the hearts of those here who know you. We pray that if there are any who don't know you here, who are clinging to the wealth that they have, even the children in this room, I know that they're wealthy. They have all these things at their fingertips every day. And we certainly, no one here, nor ever, has kept your standard of goodness. And so we pray, Lord, that because your grace, because your perfection in your Son, Jesus Christ, has covered us, has been the propitiation for our sins, all a work of your saving grace, through faith, that we might live and go out Uh, from this day as those who surrender all to you as those who don't hold on to any idols in the secret places of our hearts lord each one of us now is thinking about those those areas that were like you know yeah i kind of really like that and if god had asked me to take you know to take that from me i wouldn't want to that we might be willing and able and ready to serve you at every moment, every second, every minute, every hour, every day to bring you glory because we are your children. As we learned this morning in Sunday school, we're either slaves of sin or slaves of Christ. So we pray that we would do that faithfully. Thank you for preserving this encounter for us. And Lord, we look forward to next week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Thank <coughs> you.